Statistics is generally a field not known for its humor, at least to the broad public, although I will say John Baylor has been an exception <laughs> in my life. That's because you laugh at me. That's not... <laughs> It's a shame, though, because humor is a way to make complicated subjects like statistics or big data accessible to general audiences. The intersection of humor and stats is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories coming to you from the annual meeting of the Royal Statistical Society. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as panelists are John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and and Brian Taran, editor of Significance Magazine. Our guest is writer, comedian, and presenter Tamandra Harkness. Harkness writes and presents BBC Radio 4 documentaries, including the series Future Proofing and How to Disagree. And are you a numbers person for BBC World Service? I frankly am not. She formed the UK's first comedy science double act with neuroscientist Dr. Helen Pilcher and has performed scientific and mathematical comedy from Australia to Pennsylvania with partners including stand-up mathematician Matt Parker and Socrates the Rat. Her latest solo show, Take a Risk, hit the 2019 Edinburgh Festival Fringe with randomized audience participation and an electric shock machine. (laughs) A fellow of the Royal Statistical Society, she's a founding member of their special interest group on data ethics. Tamandra's book, Big Data, Does Size Matter, was published by Bloomsbury Sigma in 2016. Tamandra, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure. I, I'm just going to ask that I think the obvious question is how does a comedian take on technology and math and science as a focus of her work? That's a relief because I thought you were going to ask about the electric shock. <laughs> I do uh, want to know. Well, that's about my that. question, Tamandra. I'm going to ask that next. <laughs> I, I may be the only fellow of the Royal Statistical Society who owns my own electric shock machine. Um, okay, well, interestingly, you see, there's a lot of people now who use comedy as a way of getting across their their specialist subject, whether it's science or maths or something else. And I came the other way. I came in the other direction. I was already a professional stand-up comedian. And so was Dr. Helen Pilcher, although she had a day job at the time. And we met at a meeting at the Royal Society uh, on stem cells because I was trying to write something about it. And we bumped into each other in the coffee room. And I was really surprised because I'd only ever seen her in rooms above pubs making jokes about beer bellies and there she was looking really smart with a badge on and so I sidled over and went what are you doing here and she said I'm a stem cell scientist that's my day job what are you doing here and so we went oh we should do some comedy about science because we were both getting really bored with the things that comedy was always about it was always about the differences between men and women and about drugs and about sex about alcohol and we just wanted to do some comedy about something more interesting. Although, ironically, when I look back at the things I've done comedy about, I have actually done now comedy about the differences between men and women and uh, and sex and drugs, but from a scientific and mathematical mm. point of view. So it was really for me. And then I went on to do uh, a degree in maths and statistics with the Open University. But for me, it was comedy that reignited my curiosity really about about science and mathematics and statistics so it's more the other way around for me it's less why do you use comedy to talk about mathematics it's more how did you end up in mathematics having started out with comedy (laughs) you know I think there's an element of of, uh, you have to change hearts before you change heads 
and that that you you know that the comedy is is opening up to message. It's engaging and getting excitement and, and interest. And if you can get the interest, then then the messaging can also be connected to it. So that's yeah, that all of that is true. I think, and, and a lot of people do use it for that. But absolutely, genuinely, for me, it was the other way around. I. I like doing comedy because I like making people think. Oh. That's that's absolutely true. I always have. Uh, I've always been more interested in the kind of comedy where people laugh and then go, "Oh, it's interesting. Why did I laugh at that?" Uh, because it opens people's minds up a bit. It catches them unawares, and also, of course, it's enjoyable, which is always a plus. <laughs> and then it was my curiosity then about science and mathematics that I kind of came to in that direction and then I thought well look you know if I find it interesting why wouldn't anybody else find it interesting and it does as I say it does make a change from talking about the same old same old thing because this was back in well I think it's back in 2000 or 2001 so now there are a lot of good people doing good comedy about science statistics mathematics at the time we genuinely were the first two people in the UK I think there were a couple of guys in Australia doing it uh, and everyone else had exactly that. You, you do comedy about what? <laughs> <laughs> so how do you make people think uh, with an electric shock machine? What's the... Uh... <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the electric shock machine, I first got it when I did a show about brain science and gender, uh, co-starring Socrates the Rat, uh, whose job was to be male and a rat <laughs> and I uh, one of the what are the differences that psychologists find on average between uh, populations of uh, grown-up men and women is that on average men tend to be more open to taking risks and I wanted something that I could demonstrate this very graphically to the audience preferably with audience participation. So I wrote to a psychologist friend of mine and said, you do research into pain, don't you? Is there a, like a civilian version of the equipment you use that I could buy to do you know, harmless pain on an, an audience member? And he said, this is great timing. I'm about to relocate to Singapore. I have an electric shop machine. I don't want to take it with me. It's yours. And so he gave me this laboratory standard machine with all the safety instructions, it's got a seven page risk assessment and everything. And I would invite people in the audience in the show about uh, sex differences to to get up and uh, and basically gamble, take a 50 50 bet. And if they lost the bet, I'd get to give them an electric shock. And if they won the bet, they got to give me an electric shock and I gave them some money. And I have to say, Whoever was flipping the coins on that, who was another audience member, let's just say I look back at the end of the tour and I was well down on money and electric <laughs> shocks. So I don't think there was fair coin action going on there. Uh, and then when I went on to do a show about risk, this was a very obvious thing. And I would, again, I basically I used it for gambling to let people in the audience think about their own decision making around risk. And uh, and your previous guest, Tim Harford, I think, has probably looked at things around this where it's never a purely mathematical calculation. There are always psychological elements. It's never just about going, well, on average, I will win if I do this, because you might say, well, I'm prepared to take quite a large risk of a very small electric shock, 
but I'm not prepared to take even a very small risk of a very large electric shock because there's a kind of maximum amount of pain that I'm prepared to risk. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, I would get people randomly selected from the audience and offer them the chance to to do this gamble about whether to get an electric shock or not as a way of saying, look, whenever we make these decisions, it's not just about can you do arithmetic in your head. It's always in the context of much wider decisions that we make. I love that you phrased it, uh, harmless pain. <laughs> yeah. I, I would not do that because any pain to me feels harmful. <laughs> Oh, well, there is actually, I had to get people to sign a consent form uh, because people with a pacemaker, for example, it's very dangerous for them uh, and certain other medical conditions. Also, it really ups the ante on stage when some audience volunteer is having to read a consent form (laughs) and sign it. It ups the fear level, which makes the whole thing more dramatic. And it also gives them a little point where they could elegantly back out. Mm. You know, if they're having second thoughts, Mm. they could read it and go, no, I've I've got a medical condition. No, I can't. I can't do this. You know, in, in reading through your, your, your big data book, I mean, I, I really liked, I liked the historical tour of kind of thinking about data and society and in statistics and also about computing and how that, that emerged. And then you, you have this, this, this organizing statement here of data where you touch on these, these different components. Would you, could you kind of summarize for, for folks that haven't read it how you've organized your thinking about big data? Oh, my backronym. Your backronym. Yes. yes. Backronym. Yeah. No, I, I thought everybody knew this word, backronym, which is where you want an acronym. So you, <laughs> you want a word that spells out your ideas, but then you reverse engineer it to get the word that you wanted. So I thought I would do this uh, so that I could get data, D-A-T-A. Uh, now, obviously, big data is partly big. There is a lot of it. That is part of the point. But I thought... It's not just that. It's not just that there's more of it than there used to be. It's also these other things. And I and I did. I managed to get them to fit D-A-T-A. So D is for different or diverse or dimensions, if you want to get a bit technical. The idea that you can have different types of data and when you combine them, you get a multidimensional picture, whether it's of an individual or something that you're studying. Uh, so... I mean, the best example I got from that was a brain scientist called Professor Paul Matthews, who said, if you have lots of brain scans, for example, he said, I have brain scans, but if you have lots of brain scans, that's just large data. Big data is when you combine the brain scans, the patient records, the postcodes where the patients have lived, the weather records of those postcodes, and then you put them all together and you ask a different question from what the people were collecting the data for. In his case, he wanted to know how many hours of sunshine had the patients had? Did that correlate with the progression of their illness? So that's D, so it's diverse, different dimensions. Uh, A is for automatic, because so many things we do now just automatically generate data. So you almost like collect it by default. T is for time, because things are collected pretty much in real time, it lends itself really well to making a time series and you can project that into the future and see how things are going to change. And then the other A is for, for AI, for artificial intelligence, because the programs used to analyse the data very often are what you might call artificial intelligence. I mean, I, I don't want to make claims that it can think, but there's, there's an element of unsupervised processing where instead of saying follow every step in this program, you say to the computer, uh, I want you to sort these brains into 
sick and well or male and female and I'm going to give you one data set that's pre-sorted and I'm going to let you deduce the rules that you need to follow to, to sort the rest of the data. So that's different, diverse, automatic, time and AI. On, on the subject of algorithms um, and, and AI, I guess you, uh, you've been doing a lot of writing recently on the Ofqual algorithm. I think I saw, was it a tweet that you said about you've become a overnight expert in Ofqual's <laughs> algorithm? So for, for US listeners, this is where in England, the uh, in the absence of exams because of COVID-19, grades were issued based on uh, teacher or, or, or centre assessment. Schools and colleges submitted the predicted grades uh, the government essentially ignored those, used an algorithm uh, to produce some grades that were lower than what the students were expecting. There was a protest, there was a reversal. Enter Tamanja to explain the situation more clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, well, you've explained it quite well, actually. Yes, this, this was a classic case where uh, a radio programme rang up and said, we're covering this algorithm thing, could you come on and just explain how it works for us? And I said, OK, well, you know, I understand algorithms in general. I could do a bit of research into this one and and come on. And so did lightning research for two hours and came on the radio program and said, well, you know, you would expect that if you're not holding the exams, then you would take the predicted grades that the teachers had given, which are often based on previous exams that kid has taken, at least as your starting point. But they didn't do that. They went... What's really important to us is that the overall pattern of the grades will closely resemble the previous three years. So what we're going to do is for each school, we will take their results for the previous three years and we'll get an average of those. And we'll say, OK, well, those are the grades that your school is going to get this year. This this pattern, you know, so many A's, so many B's and so on. And then, oh, OK, how are we going to decide which kid gets which one? Ah, well, we'll get the teachers to rank them in order from best to worst. And then we've already got this, this selection box of grades that we've decided your school is getting. And we'll give them out in that order from top to bottom. And that was what they did. The only role that the kids' exam results, that the actual kid getting this result out of the algorithm, the only role their previous exam results played was... As a whole class, as a whole group, they would say, if they have done spectacularly better or worse than previous years, then we'll adjust it upwards or downwards. Or if they were in a very small subject group, at which point, if they were like 10 or 8 kids in a class, Ofqual went, yeah, OK, it's probably not fair then to just allocate them the same as previous years. So in that case, we will take them into account. But I just thought it was, A, an astonishing decision, and B... Also horribly typical, in fact, of the way a lot of algorithms work that mm. make decisions about us, that really they're minimally based on anything we do or are or have done. It's very largely based on what the population of people who are deemed to be like us have done in the past. Were you surprised that, that you know, that just to see those same issues coming up? I mean, it was four years ago your book was published and you were warning about these sorts of things back then, right? <laughs> We've not moved on a great deal, I guess you would say. It's well, yes and no. I mean, I think we're a bit more aware of these things, but yes, it is a bit astonishing to see that the whole juggernaut, if you like, rumbles on the same way. And it, I mean, in fact, that's the thing that I'm interested in now that I'm looking at now is to say, well, don't let's get fixated on the technology here because it's not like you know it isn't like the technology is a robot that has arrived from space with sentience and say I am the algorithm and I'm in charge now 
human beings build this stuff. Human beings decide what data to collect. This is all human beings doing this. The question really is, what is it about us? What is it about human beings here and now at this point in history that makes us so very keen to hand over decisions to algorithms? No matter how many times we see how flawed and how biased and how incomplete they can be, there still seems to be this urge to hand over human judgment decision-making to an algorithm. You're listening to Stats and Stories, recording at the annual meeting of the Royal Statistical Society. Our guest is writer, comedian, and presenter Tamander Harkness. Why? So you sort of talked about how now... Like, we need to sort of step back a little bit from our trust in algorithms. I guess I, the question I wanted to pose is sort of why you felt compelled to write about big data in the first place. There's a lot of people writing about and publishing on big data. What was it that made you feel like you had to publish and write that book? Well, it's actually, it started a few years before with me getting interested in statistics. And I doubt that Brian remembers this, but the first thing I ever wrote for Significance magazine was an article called Seduced by Stats? question mark, Which was probably about the time that Matt Park and I were doing the show called The Maths of Death on the Fringe. And it was because I, I was confused because, you know, I really like maths. That's why I went back and studied it again. I, I've always liked it, but I've always realised that this is a kind of a minority sport, really. <laughs> Most people don't like mathematics and they'd be very happy to never have to look at it again. And yet those same people were getting really excited about statistics. They were getting really excited about uh, infographic displays in newspapers, what your previous guest, Tim Harford, was talking about. And I thought, well, this is odd because I like statistics. I'm quite excited about what you can do with them. But I know for a fact that all of you people really hate mathematics. So why are you getting so excited about some graphs? What? It's as if you think here's some magical oracle of objective truth that in a, in a difficult time where nobody really knows what's going on, you can at least look at the numbers and the numbers will appear in shining light and tell you what to do. And then as things evolved, I started to see people talking about big data in the same way. And I was thinking, well, again, the kind of mathematical side of me goes, this is really exciting. Can you really do all this stuff just by collecting loads of data and applying mathematical processes to it? Because that's really exciting if it can do all the things that you're claiming. This could really transform loads of things. But on the other hand, is this those same people that got really excited about infographics in newspapers? Are they now getting really excited about big data because it's big and shiny and I don't understand it? So maybe it's really clever. And in fact, I I talked to an American scholar called Christine Rosen, who was looking at it. and, And I said to her, you know, have you got a definition of big data? Because this is this is when I was making a program, in fact, for Radio Four about it, and she said, "Yes, it's an oracle. People look at it and they think it's going to mm. give them all the answers." So, so it was oh. that really. I mean, you know, part of it was my mathematical interest and me oh. going, "Look, isn't this clever? You get all this data and you do this to it, and it tells you this thing that you never knew before." And I, I do still find that really exciting. But then the other bit of me was, you know, me as a citizen, if you like, going, "Why are we so convinced that?" All these quite difficult and messy and complicated human problems can be solved if you just collect enough data and put it into a big enough computer. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to pull in uh, a question from the audience, and this is a reminder, if you have questions for Tamandra, we will try to get to them um, throughout the rest of the show and certainly at the end. But someone just posed a question, whose decisions do you think are more biased, algorithms or people? And I felt like a nice sort of question to sort of scoop in there. That's a brilliant question. That is a brilliant question. I mean, I think it partly underlies the urge to get an algorithm in. You think, well, I know that I'm biased and I'm full of all these shortcuts and loyalties and emotions. Uh, So maybe an algorithm could step back from that and be more objective. Well, I think there's two things at play. One of them is that algorithms are made and designed by people. They are as flawed and imperfect as the people that build them. The advantage they have, if you like, is that by building an algorithm, you kind of have to build assumptions into it, but it does help you be more aware of what the assumptions are that you're building in. And even though you can't have a fair algorithm in an unfair world, I mean, for example, to go back to the A-level schools results algorithm, the truth is that in a normal year when the kids took exams, a lot of them would find that their exam results were lower than the teachers had predicted. So this does tell us something about... The, the unfairness of the school system, probably. Uh, but in a normal year, the kids get to take the exam themselves. So at least they get to affect their own outcome. Uh, and this year they didn't. So you can't actually have an algorithm that is going to dish out a completely fair result because the world is not fair. What you can do is say, OK, well, but we need to be explicit about what kind of fairness are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve everybody goes in on an equal basis, in which case we know that what comes out will be unfair because it's an unfair world. Or are we going to say we want things to come out that look fair by some other measure, in which case maybe we have to adjust people and not treat them fairly on the way in. I mean, Ofcore were a bit defensive. They said, well, we have tested our algorithm by all these measures. We've tested them like our, our, our poorer children going to be disadvantaged? No. Are uh, boys or girls going to be disadvantaged? No. Are these different ethnic groups going to be disadvantaged? No. All these subpopulations are going to come out roughly as in the same state as they would if they'd taken the exams. So on a population level, they said, we've been totally fair. Look, every subpopulation has been treated fairly. It's like, yeah, but every individual hasn't been treated fairly. Mm-hmm. So so that I think it can be good that building an algorithm makes you th- makes you decide, well, what does fairness look like? What kind of fairness do we want? And also, by the way, this reveals to us what the unfairnesses are in the world. Mm-hmm. But but the thing is, there's also this slightly underlying assumption that people are basically all biased and prejudiced and awful. And I think you have to remember the difference between algorithms and people is that a person can reflect on themselves and go, oh, yeah, actually, I just caught myself assuming that you know, all boys were like this. But actually, you know, even if even if the data says that on average more boys are like this, I, I shouldn't assume that of every boy that I meet. And therefore, I'm going to change my attitude in future and deliberately try not to think that and deliberately set myself up so that I don't slide into those habits. Whereas an algorithm has no moral sense. An algorithm mm-hmm. isn't going to go, that was wrong. An algorithm is going to do exactly what you programmed it to do. 
So I, you know, one thing about the the algorithms, I wonder. I, I love this idea that that you've you've raised this this issue of you know, turning over human judgments to algorithms. But I also I also wonder if if it's how people sell algorithms and the results of algorithms that perhaps they sell them as if they have this level of precision that they really don't have. That they they oversell predict the precision and undersell the uncertainty and variability that are baked into this. Yeah, I think that's that's a point very well made. And and again. It's like there is just the very basic thing of, especially if you're a, if you're a corporate entity and you're designing an algorithm, you go, "Hey, our magic algorithm will help you do this," and you go, "You've just given me two decimal places there." So that basically means you're making this up. I'm not going to take you seriously at all. And this this is a problem sometimes that you want to question how did you get those outcomes, and especially if they're private companies, they go, well, we can't tell you, it's a, it's, a statute. It's, a, it's a secret, it's our commercial secret. But the other thing is, I think that it's, it's that uncertainty question, which I think is a much bigger question. Mm. I think we look to things that have numbers attached for certainty. I think that's that's one of the very deep appeals at the moment of statistics and data and numbers is that the world is very uncertain, it's very unpredictable. Uh, it feels it feels risky, even though actually it's safer than any other period in history. Still, even even in spite of a pandemic, it's still a very safe period. But because it's hard to make sense of, because it's a world that's changing socially and politically as well as everything else, I think people feel very insecure. They they feel fearful about the future and they hope that numbers and data will give them something very definite so you may know that the future is going to be awful but at least you'll know it's going to be awful in with mathematical precision whereas of course all, all statisticians know that I uh, approximately 95 percent of your job uh you know <laughs> two two or three uh either side is actually just quantifying uncertainty is mm. saying well we think it's probably within this range but the, the, the like the more you narrow that down the less certain you can be about it it's like you know you could look at you could easily look at the whole of britain and go well we're we're, we're certain london is in there somewhere but then the smaller the area you you pull out the less certain you are london is in it unless you know it's london mm. So I think that being more upfront about uncertainty would really help in a lot of a lot of cases. Just we all need to learn to accept risk, not just in the sense of going out on your bicycle and getting in a terrible accident like poor Tim did, but but risk in the sense that you don't know what the future is going to be. And sometimes you don't even know things about the present. You know, we don't really know how many people have coronavirus we can make an estimate by various methods and we can have various figures and go, OK, well, these are different, but they give us a ballpark figure. But we don't know. and We probably never will know. And what we have to do is become better at making decisions, accepting that we don't know things for certain. And all we can really do is get an idea of roughly what something is and how, how uncertain it is. So we have Tim Harford still with us, and I believe he has a question for you, Tamandra. So, Tamandra, you, you've raised a couple of times the, the puzzle that we put so much trust in algorithms. And I wanted to ask you to, about that a little bit more. I mean, the, the, the A-level predictions thing is a, a really stark example. There's a situation where, if you put it baldly, the government said, we are going to cancel your exams because it's not safe. 
and then a computer will give you the grade that you would have got if you had sat the exams. Which, of course, when you put it like that, it can't possibly be true. <laughs> so how did they, how is it that they managed to fool themselves into thinking that it might be true? How did the rest of us uh, ex nod and accept, oh yeah, I, that, I suppose that'll do. And is there anything that we can do to have a more realistic view of what algorithms can and can't achieve? Because they've got their well, place, exactly. of course. Well, I, exactly. I mean, I, I, part of me hopes that the fact we had teenagers out on the streets with signs that saying things we probably can't say in a podcast, <laughs> but they're very rude about what the algorithm could go do. Uh, I'd slightly hope that that will actually sink in and people will go, yeah, a lot of this is just hype. And how could, a, how could an algorithm ever possibly know that? I don't know. I do think it's less a sign of how powerful algorithms and data are and more a sign of how much we lack in, in the human fields of you know, politics, economics, philosophy even. I mean, we, we do have a government in, in the UK at the moment that is quite technocratic. We, I mean, certainly Dominic Cummings is one of the chief advisors, is really, really keen on data and prediction and algorithms and getting more people into government that understand data, which, you know, one level would be great. It would be great if more of them understood stats and data. But they, there is a slight air of, well, yeah, you know, if we get enough clever people, enough data in, that will give us all the answers. And I rather want to say, but you're the government, you should have ideas, you should have policies, you should have principles, you should have a vision of where you want to take this country to. And that's what's going to get us through. And data and algorithms, and however good they are, can only be a means to help us get there. They can, they can possibly give us a better idea of where we are and a better idea of the outcomes if we do different things. But they're not going to tell us what we should do. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think it's that. I think it's a lack of direction, a lack of vision, a lack of self-confidence that leads us to put far too much confidence in algorithms. Uh, that's, that feels tied into a question we have. We got from an audience member who asks, if we're spending enough time scrutinizing the questions, we're trying to have big data answer for us. Oh, a question if we are. Uh, no, I don't think we are. No. <laughs> no. No, I don't. I, but I think that's that's a really good question exactly for that reason. I think if you formulate the question right, then finding the answer is often much the easier part. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think if you ask a lot of statisticians, their job is to go in early and help people formulate the right question in the right way. Uh, I, I certainly, I mean, you know, I would still say, even though I scraped a maths and stats degree, I would still say I was more a writer than a statistician. Mm -hmm. And I always say, if I can ask the right questions, you know, I consider that a, a job well done. And I leave getting the answers to somebody else. So we have two, uh, two more comments that came through. One just from someone who said they attended your show at Fringe last year. Very entertaining and instructive, but they did not volunteer for the shock wager. <laughs> um, and then so this is kind of related. Uh, so someone is asking if you would mind telling your favorite statistical joke. Well... They might have heard it before because it is my favourite. I do tell it all the time. But uh, why should you never tell a statistician he was average? Because it's mean. <laughs> oh, that sounds like one that John Baylor might have actually told oh. in the past. <laughs> yeah, I, have so my, I have to tell you, Tamandra, my 
My family thought this was an impossibility that that we, that there could be someone who could have have humor and statistics as part of their life. Oh, well, it's, actually, I have I have a worse one, uh, but it may oh, be good. it may be a bit UK specific. I don't know if I don't know if this will make sense to American audience. But uh, what is a statistician's favorite sandwich filling? Correlation chicken. Uh, oh, see, I don't know if you have coronation yeah. chicken. I I'm familiar like with it. American <laughs> listeners going, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Before we before we go, I saw you. So I was stalking you this morning as I did preparations, <laughs> and I saw that you tweeted out that you have a new piece out in Significance um, about. And I figured Brian would like me to ask about that um, about John. Grant? I don't know if I'm pronouncing John his or Grant. Grant, yeah. Grant? I, I'm a bit obsessed, actually. <laughs> so you called you him a superhero of stats. Why? Yeah, well, because he, so he was born 400 years ago this year, as I only discovered right in this piece, for <laughs> significance, because uh, he makes a, a tiny appearance in my book because I, I try and get over the ideas, the stats ideas in the book, by telling you the story of the person who first thought of them because they kind of make more sense. And he, so he lived through the English Civil War. He fought in the English Civil War on the Parliament side. Waves of plague, because he was in London. He was a founder member of the Royal Society, in spite of just being a humble haberdasher. But he wrote this one book, which was about the bills of mortality, which is about the, the death records of what people had died of. And in this book, he just invented all these concepts which he needed to try and get information out of the data. He basically had this raw data for about... 50 or 60 years of bills of mortality and he went through and he said well you know but you can see these patterns and if you do this you can see that pattern so he came up for example with the idea of excess deaths he looked oh, at wow. it and he said well in this you know in this year we say it's a bad plague year because there's this many plague deaths listed but hang on if we look at deaths from other diseases in the years before and after this year they were about seven or eight thousand and in this year it's seven it's in this year, it's 18,000. So where did these 10,000 other deaths come from? There must have been more plague deaths than were written down as plague. And so many, so many ideas, which, you know, he didn't have the language for it, but he basically invented a lot of statistical ideas. And yet there's not, there's not a statue, there's not even a little plaque to say where he lived. Mm. Well, there should be. There should be. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a campaign. He has a few fans, actually. I might just start a fan club okay. and go statue of John Graunt and then he lost everything in the Great Fire of London and then he was persecuted because he'd converted to being a Roman Catholic which at the time was very unpopular and basically died in poverty aged only 53 I know he's like his life is a roller coaster and he invented all these statistical ideas he, there should be a Hollywood movie about him if there's any Hollywood producers listening <laughs> Write to me. I, I can write that's, the script. That's, that's our biggest listener audience segment, Tamandra. That's, <laughs> that's, that's clearly who we're appealing to in this. this, this Absolutely. This I'm gonna, I'm I mean, gonna George Clooney could totally play him. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to launch, um, just to, to, as we're wrapping up, John's question he normally asks is sort of maybe what advice would you give to statisticians who want to maybe not shock people in an audience, right, but maybe want to communicate <laughs> Um, to a broad public, what advice would you give to them as they're thinking about how to present their their research or, or connect with, with those, those audiences outside the statistical community? Get a cute rat, but accept that everyone <laughs> loves the rat more than you. Uh, no, okay. Um, I think, basically, you've got to 
start where those people are. And I think this is always whether you're trying to do comedy or radio, write books or whatever you're trying to do. Just start where those people are. Listen to them more than you talk to them. Think about, well, what's, you know, what are they concerned with? What newspapers do they read? Have a look at their newspapers, see what the stories are, what the adverts are for. Those are the things that those people are interested in. Start from there uh, and, and go to where they are. Look for, look for things that will, that will arouse their emotions. I mean, to take us right back to where Tim Harford started us off. It's the feelings that will grab them and make them care. Uh, if you can't make them feel something about what you want to talk about, then why would they give you any attention at all? Well, that's great. And thank you so much for being here today. That's all the time we have for this episode, Tamandra. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we'd like to also thank the Royal Statistical Society for allowing us to record as part of their annual meeting. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.